What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Conrad Hilton, founder of the Hilton Hotel Group, didn't necessarily want to be a hotelier when he grew up. But then, despite his friend's reservations, a seedy little hotel planted the seed of an idea that turned him into one of the frontiersmen of the hotel industry. But it wasn't always a comfy bed to lie in. And when the Great Depression hit, it very nearly closed the doors on Hilton. Let's check out how quick thinking, outstanding work ethic, and care for his fellow man helped Conrad Hilton check in to massive success. This is Hilton on the Brink. Hey there, guys. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. And today we're talking about a subject suggested to us by one of our listeners, DJ Hilton. Yeah, thanks, DJ. And uh, this is a big subject. Obviously, the Hilton Hotels, that's an enormous company. But uh, we're specifically focusing on the founder, Conrad Hilton, and sort of his journey into establishing the Hilton Company. Which that journey is filled with, I think, one of the biggest brink moments of Hilton's entire existence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you're talking about launching a business. Uh, shortly before the Great Depression, and there were multiple times when the company could have just gone belly up, but didn't. And mm-hmm. we're going to cover all of that. There's also, we want to mention, going to be a, a part of this story that is really disturbing, uh, and we will give a trigger warning when that gets closer. It is a, a very dark mark on the entire story, but we feel it's important to include yeah. for the full objectivity. A lot a lot of the history written on Conrad Hilton is very, very positive, but there there are some negative things, and it's important to look at it all. Yeah, and so. uh, yeah, we'll talk more about it when we get there, but you might, we'll, we'll let you know, but you might want to skip ahead if you if you get very sensitive about difficult topics. Yes, and one last thing to mention. It was recently Hilton's 100th anniversary. Uh, We did a whole bunch of research on this episode, but a lot of the dates and ages and little minutiae of this history and of of this story 
varied from different sources. Yeah, you might see that something supposedly happened in 1946 in one source, and another source says it was 1947. And so just to establish the fact that the dates we're going to be using are are largely, you know, ish dates, because we just, we can't be sure. It's It's hard when you're looking at different sources, all of which appear to be you know, reliable ones, but they're giving different information. Exactly. Uh, But we do know one date for certain, and that is the date when Conrad Hilton was born. Yes. It was Christmas Day, 1887. Yep. In the little town of Bethlehem. No. um. (laughs) No, but a different town. It was a town of San Antonio, but not San Antonio, Texas. No, San Antonio, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. He was born to Mary and Augustus Hilton. Or Gus to his friends. Gus to his friends. I'm not Augustus's friend. No, neither am I. I never knew the man. But. Uh, He was also one of eight children. Yep. So big family. And Gus Hilton was quite the businessman himself, right? He was. He he did a lot of things. He did trading, financing. He ran a general store. Uh, He financed things like mines. Uh, You mean like the hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go type of mines? Yeah, not like Minesweeper on your computer. Minesweeper. So, yeah, so then this work ethic was passed along to Conrad as well. Conrad Hilton, even as a kid, had a, a real get-up-and-go kind of attitude, right? He did. He did a lot of things before he became a hotel owner yeah. and manager, and he started really, really young. Um, one of the things that he's known for across most of the research that I saw is that he was a big dreamer and he worked hard. Mm-hmm. And he was raised Catholic, a devout Catholic. His mother was a Catholic. And so uh, that was an important part of his life throughout the entirety of his life. And there are still some glimmers of that in foundations and in his business right. today. So some references to Catholicism or at least some nods to to uh, Catholic philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we said he started working very young. Some reports I saw said I think as early as five, he might have been growing and selling vegetables. Uh, but he was also helping in his dad's general store. That was the biggest thing. Yeah. And then uh, his dad maybe wanted him to be a general because he sent him off to military school at age 11. Ah, I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, well, he did okay. Yeah. He wasn't, wasn't a, you know, wasn't the, the valedictorian or anything. No, but he was really good at math. Yeah. And apparently he was encouraged to study engineering, but he didn't find that particularly compelling. But in 1904, his father hit it really big. He sold one of his mines and made a lot of money, and they all moved out to California, the entire family. Mm -hmm. And Conrad, with his good work ethic, went ahead and got himself a newspaper route. Yep. He kept on working, and the family lived out there for a few years. But then there was a big recession in 1907, and the Hilton family was hit particularly hard. Uh, Gus Hilton's entire small fortune that he had made that allowed them to move out to California was completely wiped out and they had to relocate back to New Mexico. Yes. What they did there should have been like a premonition for Conrad Hilton's career path, but it wasn't. No. Uh, They took their home and they turned it into a boarding house. Mm -hmm. And and Conrad Hilton was put to work as well. He wasn't just uh, living there. He was the bellhop. Yes. And their house was perfectly suited to it, according to reports, because as each child in their large family was born, Gus would add another room to the house. So there were lots of rooms. There were lots of rooms. Yeah. So that's why they could turn it into a boarding house. So then uh, when he was really 
right at 21, I think, or this is one of those dates. Yeah, that some gets, say 25. I think most say 21. Yeah, but somewhere around there, Conrad Hilton, uh, quote unquote, takes over the general store from his father. But there's a reason we put quotes around that. Yeah, his dad was a micromanager. He couldn't let go. Yeah, he was no Elsa. No Elsa? Let it go. Oh, no, Elsa. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anyhow, uh, Conrad learned some more work ethic out of this. So even though it wasn't the intentional work ethic his dad tried to instill in him, mm-hmm. it was additional work ethic. He he learned he had to keep cool and calm and not make a big deal out of things. His dad would freak out. Would freak out. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's something he could handle. He also really learned the value of delegation through this. He's like, if I give somebody a task, I'm going to trust them to do it. I'm going to put people in the positions I need that I trust Mm -hmm. so that when I give them a task, I trust them. Right. Because this is ridiculous. That way I don't have to sit there and hold their hand or stand Mm -hmm. over their shoulder. This also served him well because he would serve a a stint as a politician. He was uh, in New Mexico's first state legislature in um, 1912. So. That was another valuable experience for him. He also got a lot of experience doing public speaking, which would be another thing that he would rely heavily on further on in his career. Yeah, there were some reports saying that he was the youngest. Some reports said he served two terms Mm -hmm. or one term. It's still pretty impressive. New Mexico was pretty new at that point. Yeah. Uh, Then he became a banker, which was sort of what he had been hoping to do for Mm -hmm. a while. but. he ended up taking his, the entirety of all of his savings, and then that was just under $3,000 or so. Uh, but that was just a little bit of what he needed. He then borrowed or raised about $30,000 in capital in order to found his bank, and everything went swimmingly, and he became one of the biggest financiers in all of American history, right? And that's why he's so successful. Uh, no, it turns out that after he did this, the board of directors and the shareholders both did some pretty, like, mean stuff. First, the board of directors elected somebody else president Mm -hmm. of his bank. And then the shareholders tried to oust him as well, which they think might have been the doings of the old bank owner. But his dad, who had initially invested in the bank, helped rectify this, and he became, I think, vice president. Yeah. Uh, But I I guess that Hilton was already, Conrad, that is, was already prepared for this, having gone through— the experience of having his dad micromanaged, now he has a board of directors that is telling him what he has to do when he thought he was going to be the one calling the shots. So then he ends up selling the general store. The family ends up selling the general store, mm-hmm. really. And, and the bank. And the bank as well. And then Conrad ends up volunteering because that was the outbreak of World War One. So he volunteers to serve uh, during World War One. Yes, and I read that this is... Where he got his love for travel, because he traveled around the States, seeing some places he had never seen before. And then he ended up going over to France Mm -hmm. and traveled around France for the war. Uh, Now, something unfortunate happens during this time. And right before he left the army, right before he was going to come back home, his dad died, I think, in a car crash. Mm. Uh, And it, it kind of left him spinning his wheels. So he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He was thinking maybe banking. His His mom said... You need to find your own frontier. And so he moved to Texas and looked to buy a bank. He only had $5,000 to do it. Yeah. Which is not enough money to buy a bank. And in the meantime, he was, uh, he was, he had his own little side hustle going on. Because I don't think he could ever not work. Yeah. He was 
trading in mohair. That was his side hustle. I don't know if it was mohair yarn or fabric or all of the above or, yeah. Yeah, but he was looking at areas of Texas where the oil business was taking off because this was right in that era where there's the oil rush in Texas. And so he found a bank in an area where they were doing some booming business in oil and he wanted to buy it, but he was having some trouble. And uh, so he was staying in a charming <laughs> place. So the, the charming hotel in town called the Mobley hotel in Cisco, Texas. And he made a big decision about that hotel, not just to rent a room, but to buy it. Yeah. And the reason he chose to buy this Dingy little nasty hotel. Nasty little hotel. Yeah, from what the the reports I read, it sounded like uh it sounded like a rough and tumble kind of place. Yeah, well, they were turning their rooms over every eight hours. So three times a day they would check people out and check new people in. That's not enough time to like clean. Yeah. Change linens. Yeah. I don't know how big changing linens was. Oh, it's because this was back again in nineteen nineteen, but because this was a big oil boom, you know, you had all these people who were uh working in the oil fields and so they would you know, rent a room for eight hours so they could get some rest and then go right back to work. And so that's really what was going on here uh, in this rapid turnaround. But yeah, it was, this was, this was a hotel that was making some serious cash. However, just because it was profitable didn't mean that the owner wanted to hold on to it because the owner had aspirations of becoming an oilman himself and, and to make his fortune in oil. Yeah. So Conrad looked over the books to make sure it was a good decision. Yeah. Uh, and he bought it for $40,000. He got half of the money from his friends and half from the bank. I will say that his friends who invested in this were not certain. They were not of, super optimistic. this endeavor. Yeah. They, they thought that buying this hotel was a, a not great decision. Yeah. But he immediately gets to work. He starts to overhaul the hotel. He decides that he wants to maximize efficiency, make the best use out of the space that was available. He really started to try and turn it into an even more successful business. Yes. So Hilton has this really big thing all the way through his entire career and all through all of his hotels about not wasting space. And so he, when he took over the Mobley, he got rid of the dining hall. He cut his, his reception desk in half. Mm-hmm. He even turned a potted plant into a tiny novelty store. Well, he, he threw out the plant. I don't yeah. think he put, like, <laughs> mood rings on the plant leaves. Yeah. But— The 1919 equivalent. But every space that wasn't something that people could sleep in or use or a place that could make money was a waste of space. He called this finding these little areas to optimize space, digging for gold. Mm-hmm. And he also wanted to make sure he provided incentives for his workers to do an uh, exemplary job. And he was not keen to keep around people who didn't share his philosophy. If there were people that were involved in the business that didn't think like he did, he would rather buy them out than continue to try and work with them. Because, again, he wanted to work with people he trusted to do the job the way Mm -hmm. he wanted to do it. If he had a he had a partner who didn't really like people. So I would say not super suited for the hospitality industry. Yeah. I mean, uh, like a faulty towers kind of thing. Yeah. So he bought him out well above price so that he could put somebody in who he knew had the heart for the business. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't about cutting people out of the business more. So he was, he was, 
trying to make sure he was always doing right by everyone, but keeping the business first and foremost in his uh, focus. It's a really important balance. And and it should be noted that taking the time to build up your employees at a hotel and taking the time to incentivize them in that day and age was not was not common at no, all. No, no. This was definitely an unusual practice. And he also wanted to focus very much on customer needs. So he mm-hmm. wanted to make sure, let's pay attention to what our clientele wants and provide that to them in our products and our services. And uh, this was very successful. Shortly after, he leased and renovated two other hotels. Mm-hmm. And he took his army coworkers, his buddies, the people he knew from his time in the service, and he put them in charge of each mm-hmm. of those uh, because he he tr- again he trusted them he was he trusted them with his life so he certainly <laughs> trusted them with his hotels yeah uh, he was doing so well that when the next recession hit in 1921 it didn't bother him he was still making a profit yeah they were they were still able to keep the hotels running quite well uh, he also had a very strong belief that as he was adding hotels cuz this would happen throughout the history of of his work as well that the hotels shouldn't be cookie cutter. They should not all be carbon copies of a single hotel plan, but every hotel should have its own feel and own identity. And that would carry through even as Hilton would grow into a massive company. Well, it makes sense, right? Because at this time, he's not building his own hotels. He's buying others and flipping them. Yeah. So it makes sense that you... you that's so much extra work to try to make them all match. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was better to go ahead and make sure that each hotel kind of had its own personality that, that fitted in with the the region and the needs of the people who were visiting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it I'm sure it had to do with consumer experience as well, but it also just makes practical yeah. sense. Uh he also partnered with a guy named D. E. Soderman and everything went smoothly. I don't know if I can say it was the first major hiccup because I think that would be his dad dying. This yeah. was kind of the next big stumbling block for him. So he hired this guy. This guy was a, a keen businessman, but he was also an alcoholic. Yeah. And he couldn't take responsibility for the results of his alcoholism. He started blaming people for stealing money. Uh, he started blaming people for his wife's unhappiness to the fact that one of the people he was blaming for these occurrences was Conrad's friend, and he killed him. Yeah. The Soderman killed Conrad's friend. Yeah. And then, uh, and he in, got put to jail. Put into jail. So, you you might ask yourself, well, what does Conrad Hilton do? Here's here's a business partner who had uh, not only been dealing with alcoholism, but also had murdered somebody essentially, or gotten to an altercation which ended with the other person's death. Goes to jail for it. Conrad Hilton does something truly remarkable. Something that I don't think very many people would have done. No, especially considering the fact that Soderman threatened to come back for Conrad and get him, too. Conrad provided Soderman with enough money to move away and start his life somewhere else once he was released from prison. Yeah. Basically saying, here you go, go away, (laughs) but it's all good. Yeah. Like no harm, no foul. No, not quite that not, bad. Not quite but, that. But yeah, it was, It was again, considering all the different outcomes that could have followed, it, it was pretty remarkable. Now, we haven't reached the true brink yet, but we're going to get there. And uh, before we, we dive into some of the, the dark tales, we thought we'd take a quick break. 
AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. All right, so we're now in the 1920s. What happens now? Well, he decides that instead of flipping hotels, he wants to start building them. All right. So now he's no longer, well, not only looking at renovating older hotels, he's looking at creating his own structures. Exactly. He would, throughout his career, continue to acquire pre-existing hotels and turning them into his own. But now he, he wanted hotels that were truly and genuinely his. So he goes to Dallas, Texas for this first one. And it is... 
an enormous endeavor to build the hotel they estimate would cost a million dollars. A lot of money today, but a whole lot of money in 1920. Yeah. So he had to take his math brain and do a lot of mathing to make all of this work. Yes, because, he, he mathed harder than he had ever mathed before. Because if you look back, he, I mean, he was making money. Yeah. I don't think he was making a million dollars worth of money. No. Um. So the first thing he did was... Instead of buying the land to build his hotel, he leased it from the owner of the land, but he leased it for 90 years. Yeah. So then uh, after leasing it, he then secures $200,000 from uh, from various backers, investors to help with this. And he still needed to raise a whole lot more. So he goes to the bank and he gets a loan of $500,000. And he does that by leveraging the land and the future hotel. He's essentially putting up for collateral a building that hasn't been built yet. And even then, the bank wouldn't just out and out give him $500,000. Yeah. They paid him as each floor got finished Yep, on the hotel. And they had a contingency. If he ran out of money to build this hotel while the he was in the middle of the loan, they would they would end the loan. Right. So as soon as he ran out of money... He was out of money. It was going to be a game over and the bank would get the the everything. It seems like they were kind of sort of matching him. Yeah. He also would end up uh, selling his first hotel. The Mobley. And the Mobley goes bye-bye. And that would allow him to have another $100,000 for this. And um, then he really tries to push for this. And... You know, I've made the joke a couple of times already about, and then everything went well, right? And then we find out it didn't. Let's, I'm just going to skip the joke. Things did not go as planned. No. So it took longer to build this hotel than he expected. And yeah, Typical for any construction job. If anyone's ever done any construction, you know that it's going to take longer than what the quote is. <laughs> yes. And also, horror of horrors. Four floors before the hotel was finished, he ran out of money again. Yeah. So now you're facing the possibility of the bank taking everything. So he starts to borrow more money from whomever will lend it to him, including his own employees who were handing over small amounts, but they represented like life savings for some of these people. And it wouldn't be the last time that this would happen either. And we'll get there. But as we said, Hilton was really big about building up his employees. So when times got hard, his employees stuck with him, mm -hmm. especially since a lot of them were friends. Yeah. It was so dire, though, that he got the guy he was leasing the land from mm -hmm. to buy the hotel and finish it. So now the guy that he was leasing his land from owns the hotel and is and paying to finish it. And then so then Hilton leases the hotel from the landowner. Yes. So he had set out to build his own hotel and he ends up leasing a hotel anyway. But at least he built it. Yeah, it was his. Yeah, kind of. Uh, around this time, he also got married and yes. he had two kids. Uh, he would eventually have three kids with this, his, this wife. Uh, he had three sons. Uh, this was his first wife, which is a bit of a spoiler. Yes. And, you know, things seemed to pay off. He built six more hotels in two years. And then the following year, in 1929, he announced that he was going to build his biggest hotel to date, and it was going to be amazing. And then the world went into the Great Depression, which really wasn't that great. No, it was, it was huge. lousy. It was a lousy depression. It was a but lousy it was, depression. It was enormous, however. 
And so the stock market crashes and it hits a whole bunch of industries really hard. Like but, the motorcycle industry. Yeah, but the hospitality business really gets hit hard. It's hard to it's hard to go on a vacation or go traveling when you are struggling to meet ends day to day. When you're when you're eating uh Bread and 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 Pabst cheese. Pabst cheese. I was yeah. trying to remember the name of the loaf. Yeah, <laughs> a food substance loaf or something yeah. like that. Eighty uh, percent of hotels were going bankrupt or being foreclosed mm-hmm. or restructured, which is about the same. And at the time, he still has payments he has to make. Right, yeah. they're fixed payments. He's he's got to make them. He's he's uh, obligated. And so this is again where he started to take up collections, including among his employees. Like there were, this is one of those where you get the real big stories where like a, the bellboys are handing over $500, which represented their entire yeah, life savings. There, a, a gas attendant gave him quarters to help him fill up his tank of, of gas when his car was almost out of gas because all of his money was going into the hotel as well. Uh, they were also doing cost-cutting measures in the hotels, which must have been heartbreaking for Conrad, who who— really wanted to optimize these hotels for his consumers, they had to do things like close floors, and they were even yanking telephones out of rooms to save just a few cents. Yeah, for electricity room. and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but he still would end up having to look for more investment to help cover the costs, because even while he was cutting back, that still wasn't enough to stave off uh, the potential for bankruptcy. So he goes, he gets some more loans, uh, which put him in at uh, more than like half a million dollars in debt at this point. Yeah. And so it's really looking pretty grim. You could really say that this is truly the brink moment where it, he's he's sitting there looking at $500,000 in debt. It is. Uh, so he got his loan from the American Life Insurance Company ran by W.L. Moody and Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Boy, these guys. These guys, they had a reputation for not being the most pleasant people to be in business with. At least W.L. Moody's son did. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't really care either. Yeah, W.L. Moody's son was a bit of a difficult person, if I'm going to be super gentle with the description. And and senior, good old daddy, uh, was— Totally in his son's camp. It wasn't necessarily that he agreed with what his son did, but family is family. And so you had this partnership and the partnership was the agreement was that they would each have a third of the business. Yeah. And uh, and that's because uh, W.L. Moody and son not only had this life insurance company, they also owned a chain of hotels that were struggling in the Depression. Yeah. So this is all getting merged together. You've got the Hilton Hotel or hotels and you've got Moody's chain of hotels all being merged together. And as part of the agreement, Conrad had it had it written up where if they were to separate for whatever reason, he would walk away with one third of the business. And so they create this merged company, the National Hotel Company. And Conrad goes back and he uses his money to try and essentially make good on all the people who had lent him money to keep the business afloat while it was really in dire straits. I think I think, think this is fantastic that the first thing he wanted to do was make right by the people who helped him. I mean, he paid the quarters back to the gas attendant. He gave money back to the bellhop and set the bellhop up for life. Yeah, he would become an executive, actually, in Hilton Hotels. But uh, the turned out that things did not go so well with, 
with Moody and Son, as we we've already mentioned, they were essentially not paying Hilton his fair share. Uh, they stopped paying the leases on the hotels that they own. Like they were falling back on all of their obligations and laying all the burden on Conrad Hilton. And, and one of the things that I thought was really crappy is Conrad's still trying to make these hotels successful. That takes change, but it also takes money. And and Moody and Son did not want to spend that money. Yeah, they didn't want to invest in the hotels. They wanted somehow for the business to succeed without them having to put money into but it. But if Conrad decided something was absolutely needed and the managers of his hotel pushed that change through, the other two would take it out of that manager's paycheck. Yeah. It so, stinks. So Conrad says, enough is enough. I want out. And then instead of them honoring the agreement, uh, the Moody's sue him. Yeah, and he tried to sue back. But since he went to the Moody's for help, he didn't have as much money to really fight back. He he knew it would not be a long fight. Yeah. It turned out that uh, they kind of shot themselves in their foot, though, because uh, they defaulted on the lease for the El Paso Hilton. And so the owner of the El Paso Hilton turned around to Conrad Hilton and said, you can have this hotel. I don't want it. If you can pay for the amount that is owed me. If you can pay what the Moody's owe me, which was $30,000, you can have this whole hotel. But unfortunately, Conrad is still strapped for cash, and he's kind of maxed out all of his lenders at this time. Mm -hmm. So he does something really cool. It seems like he pulled a hat trick. (laughs) Yeah. He got seven small loans from companies that he could give the hotel's business to. Mm Mm-hmm. So he went to these companies and said, you give me this small amount of money and I'll give you my hotel's business for life. So a laundry mat and a beer company and things like that. Yeah. So this is almost like a community kind of, of approach to trying to raise money. And it worked and he was able to get his one hotel. And thankfully, after that, He eventually got the third of hotels he was promised. Yes. Uh, But there was one other rough part of his life at this point. His first wife left him. And according to one biography on the Hilton family, which, by the way, when you say the word Hilton, I'm sure everyone out there is thinking about all the different Hiltons who have been in Paris. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Nikki Hilton and that sort of stuff. The Hilton family is no stranger to controversy and gossip, etc., Uh, But according to one of the biographies on the Hilton family, which again gets a little lascivious, so I don't know how trustworthy it is, his wife left him for a football coach with whom she had already been having an affair. And that this very deeply hurt Conrad Hilton. And so at this point, you know, he's got the one hotel and he's starting to see some financial success, but his personal life, you might argue, is on the brink. Yeah. Well, we have more to say about Conrad Hilton in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary in Indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. All right, so Conrad Hilton has started to rebound. He's got the hotels that he was promised from his previous agreement. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Well, then he starts capitalizing on the fact that the hotel industry got hit so hard, and he starts buying up a bunch of the other hotels that struggled. In the Great Depression. Like we talked about, 80% had gone out of business or were in bankruptcy. So this is 1937. The Great Depression's not quite over yet. It would end in 1939. And he had his eye on this one particular hotel, mm-hmm. the Stevens in Chicago. He he really wanted that hotel. It was the biggest hotel in the world. He even got a personal tour of it. Uh, and it wasn't up for sale at the time. Yeah. But he... He was like, one day. One day. That and, will be mine. And so he made plans for that one day when it would be for sale. He started buying up bonds because the bonds for this place are really cheap because first yeah. session. And he had friends do the same so that if it ever went on sale, he would be the majority bondholder and have a much easier time buying it. Yeah, interesting. You know, uh, I actually stayed across the street from another hotel that he flipped during this time, the Francis Drake, which is in San Francisco. I literally stayed across the street from that hotel. And so when we were doing our research for this, I thought, I was like, why does that name sound familiar? Like, oh, right. That's what I saw every time I stepped outside of my hotel. Uh, that was actually just like a month ago when we were recording this. Nice. I'm but envious. Then he starts to, now he's seeing some success. He's starting to get, uh, you know, some traction here. The Great Depression is ending. He starts to expand beyond 
the United States. He starts opening up hotels or or leasing out hotels in other countries. Yes, in the 1940s. In fact, Hilton started the first international hotel chain. Mm. So then 1942, something else happens to his beloved Stevens. Yeah, the military uses it for housing because World World War War II. Yeah. But Conrad made $400,000 out of the deal. And later in the 40s, he got the Steven Corporation, even though the military still had the actual building. Mm. Now, 1942, here's where we're going to give our trigger warning for something really unpleasant. I would I would recommend skipping ahead by a couple of minutes if uh, you are sensitive to really uh, disturbing details because this is one of those stories. It's not, it's not fully supported and it's contested by a lot of people, but I feel like we need to mention it. So 1942, Conrad marries a second wife and his second wife is... The Zsa, Zsa Gabor. Zsa, Zsa Gabor, right. The famous... Uh, well, not really, you can't really call her an actress or a singer. She did some of both, but she was really famous for being part of the Gabor sisters. Yeah. And so Zsa, Zsa Gabor gets married. It would be her second husband and his second wife. And from most of the reports I read, their marriage was not a happy one because Conrad didn't like the way that Zsa, Zsa really wanted to indulge in the luxuries of life. Yeah. And Zsa, Zsa felt that Conrad was trying to control her. There were some reports that said Conrad called her Georgia because he had problems saying Zsa, Zsa. And then Zsa, Zsa said, no, he was forcing me to change my name to Georgia. Wow. And these conflicting stories really culminate with the birth of their daughter, Francesca Hilton, because in an autobiography, Zsa, Zsa Gabor would allege that Francesca Hilton was the product of marital rape, which is obviously, if true, truly horrifying, right? There's it 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 it's so in contrast with everything else we know about Conrad Hilton that's hard to believe, but at the same time you don't want to dismiss yes, someone's exactly. right. Now, Jaja wrote that autobiography decades after Conrad Hilton had passed away. And there were others at the time who were even questioning Francesca's parentage, who had suggested that maybe that uh, that George Sanders, who would turn out end up later being Jaja Gabor's third husband, might have been the father. And there was even one incredibly salacious report I read that suggested Conrad Jr., Conrad Ugh. Hilton's son, oh. was the father. Yeah, Ugh. so very disturbing. And Francesca Hilton's story is a truly tragic one as well. She grew up. Uh, in luxury, but that did not last her whole life. She was not a a uh, uh, you know a Hilton that was living the high life, and she died at the age of sixty seven. She was essentially penniless, living out of her car. Yeah, she uh, had she had done some acting and she had worked some for the Hilton Hotel Group and right. the Hilton Foundation, but yeah. she wasn't left much. She she was she predeceased Jaja Gabor by about two years, but at that time Jaja Gabor had dementia and was probably unaware that her daughter yeah. had passed away. So a very tragic story. It it makes you think how many, because when you're talking about a, a person mm-hmm. associated with a company as opposed to just a company, it feels like there's a lot more opinion put into there. And so it makes you wonder how many of these, because up to this point, it's been a fairly flawless record for Conrad Hilton how much is opinion or how much is 
public appearance. Right. Or, you know, it's it's really difficult to say. So we don't want to dismiss the charge, right? Exactly. That's certainly not what we want to do. It is hard to reconcile when we look at the rest of the story, but it could very well be that the rest of Conrad Hilton's story has been whitewashed a bit mm-hmm. and maybe to to really elevate him beyond. I mean, he he was a human being like everybody. Yeah. So perhaps he was a human being capable of doing that. Uh, it is impossible for us to say, uh, but it certainly is something that we wanted to to mention because it wouldn't be fair to give some sort of glowing review of this man and then yeah. skip over this detail. Exactly. Now, he also did some very good stuff. In 1944, he started a philanthropic trust, yep. the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation, uh, and it became a legal nonprofit in 1950, separate from Hilton Hotel Group. Mm-hmm. And the foundation still exists, and it awards prizes to organizations who strive to end world suffering. So small grants to a bunch of companies who mm-hmm. are really trying to make the world a better place. It also supports efforts to help the blind, the homeless, and improve education. Mm-hmm. Conrad Hilton was big on children's education yeah. and children's safety. His uh, his second son, Baron Hilton, joined the foundation in 1950. He would be the chairman of the board from 2010 to 2012. His first son, Conrad Jr., would go on to marry Elizabeth Taylor, and then he passed away in 1969. So uh, his first son passed away much earlier than than his others. Yeah. So. Well, to go back to the hotel business. Yes. Because that's what we're here for. What we're here for. Uh, In 1946, Hilton consolidated all of his properties into the Hilton Hotels Corporation. Mm -hmm. And this was really smart on his part. Again, he was using his math brain because it reduced Hilton's aggregate debt by 27%. And it raised the original investors' holdings in the company 275%. Wow. Because he listed the hotel on the New York Stock Exchange. It was the first hotel to be publicly traded. In 1948, he created Hilton International as a subsidiary company to the main company. And he tried to make sure that whenever he was building in another country, that he was sourcing things locally, right? He wasn't bringing stuff from outside. Yeah, he wanted to support the local economy. So building supplies, furnishings, even people who trained his staff. He had a motto, world peace through international trade and travel. Mm -hmm. He acquired the management rights to New York's Waldorf Astoria in 1949. That was another one that he had looked at and thought, someday you'll be mine. Uh, He used the same bond trick that he had used on the Stevens. Mm -hmm. Now, his investors didn't think this was a smart buy. And I think eventually Hilton Hotels sold the Waldorf. Yeah, but they also did a major renovation of it as well. It was it was. Considered to be past its prime, the Great Depression had hit the Waldorf Astoria pretty hard. Yes. And after that, he finally got his Stevens house and the popular Palmer house. And I say popular because it actually was making some money. Mm -hmm. And Uh, this was not a smooth transaction. No. (laughs) He, He went to buy the Stevens house. The Stevens seller kept upping the price, which is not maybe the best business decision on Conrad's part to keep agreeing to these upper prices and right. he'd go to buy it and the seller would disappear and things like that. And so he said, okay, I'm going to buy the Palmer house instead. They're being a lot more upfront about things. And then the Stevens seller came back and there was some conflict of interest and, yeah. and issues, but he eventually got both. Uh, he then 
buys a home in Bel Air for $225,000. Uh, that land appreciated in value. Yes, exponentially. It's worth over $200 million right now. Yeah. He acquired the Statler Hotels in 1954. Also, if you're a Muppets fan, you're probably hearing things like Statler and Waldorf. Yes, that's where their names come from. (laughs) Interesting fact, acquiring the Statler Hotels was the largest retail transaction in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. It was a $111 million purchase. Mm -hmm. And keeps on growing. Uh, Conrad ends up taking public speaking uh, engagements, which was something that he had enjoyed doing back when he was working in the New Mexico government. And he also starts to kind of create standards for hotel rooms that you see all around the world today. Things like uh, making sure that every single room has an air conditioning system hooked up to it. Yeah, and creating a central hotel reservation system where you can book at a room from multiple hotels in one place. Yeah. Uh, He then hands over the company in 1960 to his son, Baron, the second of his sons. And uh, Conrad would stay on as chairman of the board. I'm really hoping he didn't pull a Gus. He didn't pull a Gus. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So in 64, Hilton International becomes its own company. They spin off Hilton International. It's no longer a subsidiary. It's its own separate entity. And then it gets real complicated. Yeah, it gets traded around by airlines and foreign governments. I think United had it for a while. Yeah, for about 40 years it did this. Yeah, so further complicating matters is that there was this conflict going on between the U.S. branch of Hilton and then Hilton International. I mean, I shouldn't say U.S. branch, the U.S. Hilton Company and then Hilton International, which were two separate companies. That complication was that the Hilton International company could own hotels in the United States, but they were not allowed to call them Hilton hotels because the U.S. Hilton company had the exclusive right within the United States to use that name. Likewise, the U.S. company of Hilton was not allowed to call any hotels it owned internationally Hilton Hilton. hotels. So the Hilton International hotels in America were Vista hotels and the Hilton U.S. hotels Overseas were called Conrad Hotels. Fun. Eventually, they were able to get their act together and and work out an agreement Mm -hmm. to smooth that out. But yeah, that just makes it even more complicated. Uh, Now, in 1979, Conrad Hilton passed away at the ripe old age of 91. Mm -hmm. And he left almost all of his estate to his foundation. He gave uh, some reports, say, about 100,000 to Francesca. Francesca, yeah. So he had planned on doing this, on leaving the vast majority of his estate to the foundation. And he had said that he didn't really want to have his children just inherit a huge amount of money, uh, that they should also earn their their money just as, as he had done. I personally think that that particular thing of, of wanting your kids to earn money is pretty cool. Yeah. Baron, however— Kind of did some maneuvers that ended up making him an extremely rich man, a billionaire. Um, So Barron was able to kind of rest a larger piece than perhaps what was intended for him based on Conrad's wishes. Uh, And it made him an extremely rich man. However, Barron in turn in 2007 said he was going to to dedicate 97% of his own estate to go to the foundation. 
and kind of follow in his father's footsteps in that sense. I, I want to mention here, because this is something that just speaks to my humanitarian heart, that the goal of the foundation was to foster peace through the power of international travel. And he left guidance for the foundation to alleviate human suffering around the world without regard to race, religion, or country. And throughout his speaking engagements and his personal endeavors through life, there are accounts of him really standing up to that belief that it didn't matter what your, even though he was devoutly Catholic, mm-hmm. it didn't matter your religion. It didn't matter your race or your country. Everybody deserved to be able to live in peace. Yes. Yeah. So the foundation has uh, given out more than one and a half billion dollars in grants. So it has certainly been active in that role. So that that is something that's truly admirable. Now, Hilton's had a lot of other brink moments. Um, we're we're getting to the end, and we're going to skip some of those future brink moments. Well, past to us, but future from the time we're ending this story brink right. moments. Because we want to keep that in case we ever want to revisit yes. Hilton and kind of talk about these other moments. But, like when Hilton got acquired by the Blackstone Group in 2007. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk about that uh, in another episode. We probably won't talk about the exploits of the extended Hilton family and how they landed in tabloids time and time again. That seems like that is fit for a different type of podcast than ours. Yes. But we thought this was particularly an interesting topic. We want to thank DJ again for suggesting it. And there's so many different things that we could have mentioned. In fact, I'm looking, I'm scrolling right now through our, our different uh, facts, and there are a ton of them, but I feel like we've been going on for a good while. So I think we can conclude this and just say that, you know, Conrad Hilton was truly a tenacious businessman, you know, someone who did not give up at all. I was going to say give up easily, but he never really gave up, which is pretty phenomenal considering the odds that he was facing time and time again in his career. And according to most reports, he did it honestly and he did it upstanding. Yeah, so that's a word. <laughs> yeah, yes, I think I think we can make it one. So thank you again, DJ. If you guys have any suggestions for things that we should cover in future episodes of The Brink, you can reach out to us. How do they do that, Ariel? Well, they can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. Also, they can go to our website at thebrinkpodcast.show to learn more about us. Yeah, because we're fascinating. Yes, we are. Until next time, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I have been Ariel Kasten. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. This is Malcolm Gladwell 
from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.